Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm Hesham Montasser, founder of The Lighthouse. I'm joined today by someone who has been at the forefront of art curation, starting out in the US where she served as curator of both RISD and then Brown University's Bell Gallery before moving to Abu Dhabi. For the last nine years, she has been the founding executive director of the University Gallery at NYU Abu Dhabi and its chief curator and leading force, I might add. The NYU Abu Dhabi Gallery is a non-commercial museum gallery featuring contemporary exhibitions. I think I mentioned this to you, uh, my wife, who's a fan and friend of yours as well, who works with the Insane University. She said something that sort of uh, was interesting, and I completely agree with her, which was during your six years here, when you started the gallery, we'll talk a little bit more about this, obviously, you seem to have found a unique perspective of the kind of art you're showing the kind of artists, particularly the local artists you're working with, uh, it feels almost like a bottom-up approach, if that makes any sense. And it feels different than, and I'm not comparing, I'm just contrasting, uh, maybe others who, because, you know, you did come from abroad. I mean, you were in the States and you had, this was your first job coming here to the region. What do you feel made you be able to do that? I mean, and, and take that kind of deep ground-up interest in, in local art and local artists. As a curator, wherever I go, um, I look to respond to and be in dialogue with the artists where I am because that's where the art is happening. So it's great to be in dialogue with artists internationally, which is another part of my mission. Um, but, but art lives everywhere. It doesn't only live in New York and London, you know. And, and I think that when I left New York City, uh, which was in 2000. I want to say 2003, maybe. Um, and I moved just three hours away to Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and people s saw me off as if I was leaving for war and would never return. Mm -hmm. You know, I was exiting New York. Who chooses to leave New York, right? And, um, and I got to Providence, and I worked on um, at the Museum of Art at the Rhode Island School of Design. And I worked on an exhibition there looking at the a 10-year survey of an underground art scene in Providence. And it turns out that this art scene is very punk rock, very sort of um, edgy, messy, noisy art. Um, and did you grow up in Providence? I did not. Okay. I'm from California. So this was a complete... Totally new. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I go to Providence. And Providence is not a place with a lot of population turnover. People are there for multiple generations. You've been, you're there for 20 years and you're still the new guy. <laughs> right. And so I was very new. And so I'm coming into this, this world and there's a very active, very vibrant, uh, but almost totally uh, invis invisible art scene that has a huge following internationally. So they have like a cult following in Japan. They have, you know, they have people so collecting their work, but they're, but in Providence itself and also largely in New York City, they were not well known at all. Um, and yet they managed to sort of thrive and find meaning in their practice outside of what we would call the typical, you know, the mainstream art world. Um, and I started to think about um, curating as a way of being in dialogue with multiple worlds and that the what we think of as the sort of the mainstream international art circuit um, is only one part of that conversation for me. So when I came to the UAE, and I was asked to help develop uh, the plan for the gallery. I've been here almost nine years now. So nine years ago, 
I would say 10 years ago, I started visiting. I first visited more than 10 years so ago. So four years in the making, essentially, and then the gallery was launched. Exactly. So in those four years, a lot of what I did was um, reconnaissance, right? So I was going to everything. I went to the third line back when it was in its older location. I, you know, I went to some of the early um, Abu Dhabi art fairs back when it was at Emirates Palace. You know, there was a, an art scene, it turns out, um, that was very active, but also not always easy to access if you're an outsider. For me, my technique is I meet an interesting artist and I ask them to tell me who they think is interesting. And then I go meet those artists and I ask them, who do you think is interesting? And then I go meet those. And soon you start to develop a very organic mapping of a network of an art community that is not necessarily going to be visible institutionally. And especially when there really is... Um, we rely so much on commercial galleries and museums to tell us about the art worlds, but what art, matters? Yeah, and it, and and my job is to be one of those to play that role. But I like to use a metric um, for what matters that speaks to where we are. So it's I'm not going to measure somebody by whether or not they've had a show at the MoMA. I think it's great if they have. Sure. Fantastic. I'm going to measure by the sort of ripple impact that they're having on the artists around them or the dialogues that they're having with other um, forms, whether it's science, technology, other cultures, um, unusual media, new approaches, or just simply new formal, you know, their own formal um, capacity. So that's a long-winded answer, but, but it it's sort of underpins all that I do. No, and I think it was evident. I mean, I remember your first show, which I attended. It wasn't exactly to your point. I mean, the obvious show, nor was it the obvious type of names that you would see in an inaugural show. In other words, there were probably names that were, quote unquote, more well-known in the region, if you wanted to do that. And I remember being fascinated. It was a great show, in my view. And you really try to, I think, link um, also the location and the personality of Abu Dhabi and what they were trying to do in a more, both in a literal form, but in a literal way, but also in a kind of more conceptual way with those artists you brought. I remember obviously Muhammad Ahmad Ibrahim, which we'll talk about, Bassem Magdi, Ibtisam, uh, Tariq, Hussein, exactly. Mary Temple, yeah. And they weren't necessarily a group you would even think of putting together. Exactly. So this is the other side. So these artists are not necessarily connected, but I saw their, each of them has a, has a connection in their work to issues that I saw on, on Sadiat Island. So we're opening a gallery on a desert island, a university gallery, an academic, non-collecting museum, essentially. What do we think we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> and so every exhibition is an attempt to explore that question. Who is our audience? What can we do? What is needed? Um, and so the very first exhibition, I, I really tried to think about where landscape becomes culture, where um, the, the landscape of Sadiat becomes the vision of Sadiat's future and, and looking at that and thinking about Sadiat's past. Um, but, but Mary Temple, a New York artist who's never been to Abu Dhabi, but who makes murals that are almost invisible and that you only realize are there when you look really closely. And that sort of, that question of legibility and how we see what we see was kind of the question that I started with. And that first exhibition is, how do we understand what we're seeing? How do we even see it? Um, and then, so each exhibition asks a different question and they're all related to what are we doing here? 
and why. And who was your target audience? Were it the students or the, the, the sort of, let's say, the population of NYU Abu Dhabi or was it the wider UAE? And has that evolved? I mean, so if I asked you the first day you opened six years ago versus today, when you're looking to, to build a new show, has your target audience, uh, is it a moving target or has it been the same? It is a moving target. Um, it's actually plural targets uh, because we, I, I view us as, um, if you think of a medical school, a medical school will have um, a teaching hospital. So in this teaching hospital, you are, you know, the, the surgeon is operating on a member of the public, right? And at the same time, in the course of that surgery, the medical student is learning about the surgery, right? So, so that who is that surgeon serving in that moment? He is serving, or he or she is serving the students and the public and medicine, right? So I'm serving um, the development of exhibition making and thinking about curatorial practice. I'm serving the public and I'm serving my, uh, my student and faculty audience. And that if I'm not doing all three, then it's not a functioning model. It has to do all three. And there are times when I make a sh an exhibition that is um, really directed towards teaching. Um, and and um, like, for example, when I brought in Ways of Seeing that was curated by Sam and Till, that exhibition is a, te a fantastic teaching exhibition because you ask the students to take multiple positions of viewing and to think critically about the act of viewing. The engaging part exactly. for students is, is... But then it turns out the public was really into this yeah. and that our publics responded as as strongly as our students. I, I so, loved it. And the fact that you had to engage with the work, I mean, literally. It also, I think, broke some of these misconceptions that sort of this, to your point, I mean, you're looking at this art and when one is in it, I think it's different. Maybe because I've been engaged in collecting art for some time, I've lost that sense, but it intimidates people. Yes. And I think you broke some of those barriers with this exhibition where people felt they can participate. Right. In a way. There are many barriers to be broken when it comes to exhibition viewing and art viewing. Um, and one of them is the barrier between the academic world and the non-academic world. So academics and art historians write about art in one way, collectors in another way, curators in some kind of hybrid. And the general public often, you know, in the United States and here will say, oh, you know, art's not really for me. It's, you know, I don't really understand it. Therefore, I don't like it or I don't understand how it's art, and, or I don't like how it's art, right? And I say, you know what, that's great. Come on anyway. Because if you come into a space where you give yourself permission to not like what you're seeing, that's productive and that breaks barriers. You don't have to like it. You 100%. Know? And that that's, that's great. Don't 100%. like it. <laughs> and, and, and something that you've done, I think, from the beginning, in my view, very successfully, and really, I think, also helped with that is, you have built, in, um, even around each exhibition, a number of tools for your audience. So I remember coming, it was the first time I saw a youth guide as part of an exhibition. I mean, the first time I see it here in, in, in the UAE, which meant that I could take my children to that same exhibition and they will have a different experience, but it will break it down for them. You have a reading room that people can use so people want to learn more. They can go and do that. And, of course, being part of the university, uh, uh, I'm sure it helps. But I'm curious, as you essentially built a startup from scratch, so a lot of my guests here tend to be startup founders, and in a way you are within a larger uh, uh, university but started uh, something from scratch, 
how much of your time went into these processes and building these tools versus identifying artists, putting together an exhibition and all the other details that come with that? Honestly, I... I cannot believe how much work it is to start something, yeah. you know, and my hat is off to everybody who starts something. Um, and, but it's also some of the most exciting work, right? So, so when I arrived, the question was what can and should a university gallery be in Abu Dhabi? Um, the university gallery model is a distinctly um, sort of liberal arts college, North American, British, academic model. Um, and it's not something that is consistently seen around the world. It's not something that I've seen elsewhere in the Gulf. I've seen it in um, a couple of other Arab countries, but not in the Gulf. And and so, so what are we doing here? We're not going to replicate a model from somewhere else. That doesn't make sense. So, so a lot of this sort of research and preparation was exactly this, thinking through the mission. What is the mission? And I realized that it had to be always somehow tied to where we are. Um, and that doesn't mean it's going to be work by Arab artists. It doesn't mean it's going to be work about um, Islamic cultural history. It doesn't mean it's going to be work about um, landscape and architecture, but all of those things will at some point somehow come in, be connected. Yeah. But the experience of being where we are. So then how do you manifest that? We want to work at a museum level. So we have museum grade climate control. We need to have art handlers who understand how to how you do and don't touch objects and what the issues are and the risks are. We need uh, a registrar who understands conservation issues. We need a lighting designer who understands, who can see the difference between slightly yellow and slightly pink light and how that changes how you read the work, you know. All of these things. So staffing and, and building a team that can... Um, that can then create the exhibition at the level that I'm imagining it, it turns out to be a major production. <laughs> it's a major production. Yeah. And, and also, you know, there's, it's, it's a, it's a young community here. There are not yeah. a lot of people who have yeah. a lot of long-term experience no. in these areas, but and it's not that you can go to 20 museums and go poach their staff. Either. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to poach staff from the two other museums exactly. around me. That's exactly. just not so nice. you're building it from scratch. <laughs> and well, so one of the things is spotting talent. Right. So you mentioned the youth guides and Ala Adris is a wonderful artist. She's from Sharjah. She had worked in the cultural sector already. She came to work with us as the program's curator. So to do events and outreach. And she immediately saw this need to activate families. And I was like, this is great. Not only did I not think of this myself. Um, so it's her, it's totally her project. Um, but it actually augments and makes better my vision. And so I think that be keeping open to what else we could be doing that I haven't thought of already has been a huge part of what's allowed us to grow. I think if it had only been my vision alone, then you reach a certain limit. But as long as you can keep seeing what what else is what is needed now. And so another is Bana Katen, who is um, uh, born and raised in Abu Dhabi, but trained in museum studies. And she helped me in many ways with the early phases of founding the gallery, but she saw the project space and said, you know, our community needs this. We need a place for emerging artists to show. So the project space became really dedicated to activating conversations around makers and artists and faculty and students who are here. And so it's specifically for people who are here. And that was really largely Banna's kind of identifying this gap. So one of the things about a startup is that in a way the founder 
puts way too much energy. You know, I used to joke that I, like I'm the I'm the janitor and the bookkeeper and the, yeah. you know, HR manager and so on. And as the team grows, I do less and less of that. But you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and just do what it takes to get it done. But then in the process, not lose sight of opportunities to grow in areas you might not have originally planned. I think until I started this, I had always undermined a bit that, you know, you talk to founders of, of any you know, cultural institutions or otherwise, in their first year or two, and you're kind of pontificating about strategy and all of these exciting things, and they just need to go back because they need to turn on the switch or, you know, answer this email because an art handler is coming in. So you really underestimate, no matter how you try and how organized you are, how much operational stuff uh, goes into the early days. So now that you have passed that milestone, congratulations, uh, and you are on year six, what are you looking for in terms of those types of big picture strategic objectives? I think the next step for us, now that the Louvre Abu Dhabi has opened next door, which is fantastic, um, and Warehouse 421 and the Cultural Foundation and Bait 15, we have now this little kind of ecosystem within Abu Dhabi. So then then now it's instead of reaching so far and wide in my program, now it's time to sort of focus a little bit more to what other gaps need filling here. Mm -hmm. And uh, the latest one um, was to launch this fellowship, the David Webb Museum Fellowship, which is for training curators who are um, Arabic language speaking curators um, because there's a real need in the field for Arabic uh, art history. Um, we know that Arabs have been making art forever, um, but the but the art history and the practice been specifically for modern Arab art history in particular and contemporary is very slim pickings right yeah. now, and and it's largely just because there is the capacity for training, and um, and so so now I'm thinking in terms of training, capacity building, partnerships with other institutions. Um, and and working outward with what we have so that our exhibitions, what else can our exhibitions do? They can train future curators. They can develop new talent in other ways. Um, and that we're I'm always looking for ways to um, sort of how can we nourish and continue to grow, not necessarily the gallery, although we still have a ways to grow, but the entire community that we're part of. We'll continue our conversation with Maya about the local art ecosystem and how some of her work has been impacted by the pandemic right after the short break. Hi everyone, it's Hashem, and as the weather continually gets better in Dubai, if you're looking for a relaxed happy hour hangout, head to the Lighthouse in D3. We've reopened our terrace and are serving sundowners every day from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And if you stick around for dinner, make sure to try our Sail the Mediterranean set menu for 250 dirham, including a starter, mains, dessert, and two alcoholic beverages. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Maya Allison, Chief Curator at the NYU Gallery Abu Dhabi. I was fortunate to be exposed to contemporary art at a young age, having grown up in Cairo with a curious mother who was a university professor and would take me to various galleries and art openings. And this became my starting point to explore Egyptian artists before moving to Dubai in 2005, branching out, so to speak, and exploring my interest in arts from other parts of the Arab world, including the Gulf, of course. I remember meeting Hassan Sharif during those days, 
because he happened to be, as you know, the flying house is, is, is next to us in Barsha. So he was literally my neighbor. I had no idea. And I went to visit him there. And through him, I met a number of his uh, other artists. And I got really into the kind of work they do and spent a fair amount of time with him and with gallerists and other people in the ecosystem that uh, knew the art. And this was not that long ago. This was seven, eight years ago. And I was really struck with Hassan at the time by how, I don't know what the right word is, forward-looking his art was and how avant-garde it was, and for lack of a better word, and how much ahead of his time in some ways he was in yeah. some of the work he's done in the 70s and 80s and then on. Um, you put on an exhibition, uh, but we cannot see them, which I found I think is a very important exhibition, not just an excellent exhibition, but also a very important one, where you surveyed essentially 20 years of Emirati art history as represented by a number of select artists. Walk us a little bit through the rationale behind this. How did this happen? And then we can maybe zoom in a little bit more about the individual artists. I'm very proud of this project, um, partly because it tells an incredible story um, of an of a UAE homegrown avant-garde art community. So I hesitate to call it an Emirati art community because it actually included other, you know, many different nationalities were part of this, this it was circle. a Dutch artist. And a Dutch artist, Indian artist, multiple um, other uh, artists from the Arab-speaking world. Um, but but it, it was fundamentally Emirati in the sense that it, it was in and of here. Right. So in that, in that, I would definitely agree. And that Hassan Sharif was at the core of this. Um, there were a lot of other art communities as well in parallel. So I chose to focus on this particular one as a kind of, the, it comes out of this mapping exercise that I do with artists where when I first got here and I met Mohammed Kazim, and then I met Tariq Al Hussein, and then I met Mohammed Mansouri and learned that there was this history and then there was this place called the flying house and, and and in a matter of time i soon came to understand that the flying house was actually the end of a chapter correct in Not many ways yeah many people think that it was what, what was the beginning and in fact it marked a transition from a period of working kind of off the radar and off the grid as artists to a time when um, they were sort of formalizing their ability to be accessed by international curators. But before that, starting in the in the 1980s and even a little before that, um, artists had been um, kind of in dialogue and trying to figure out what the, each of their own visions would be. And so early in the 1980s, Hassan Sharif and Najum Al-Ghanem and Khaled Abudur, together with um, some other artists, were already kind of experimenting and trying things out and, and sort of staking a claim as we are here to experiment and to develop and to, to build. And I thought this was just a really important story. And I, you know, I really just, I expected that this story would get told in an exhibition. It was just a matter of time. And I waited and nothing happened. <laughs> well, and there would be a little bit yeah, here and a little here. bit there. And Hassan started becoming first known in the West mostly, exactly. and then the rest sort of slowly after that. But yeah. it was not seen collectively. I had not, until I read the book that accompanied your exhibition, I had not heard the story um, in its totality. I had bits and pieces because I was starting to take an interest and collect some of those artists from Muhammad Qasim, Muhammad Ahmad, etc. 
but that told the totality in their in their own uh, words and voice, which exactly. was also very important. You know, I, I know that when Reem Fada did the Emirati Expressions show, that was a really important show that kind of brought together pieces of that story for audiences. I think that when Sheikh Ahor al Qasimi did the Venice Pavilion, that showed an even wider expanse of artists and exhibitions that have been here. Um, but but what, what finally did it for me was having the third or fourth or fifth person come through my office and say, guess what? There was this place called the Flying House. And I was like, if I hear this one more time. <laughs> or then they would get they would get the artist confused. And I realized somebody's got to just set their record straight. Yeah. And I guess I might as well just, yeah. I should at least try if they're willing. And um, Allah Idris, again, and Bana Katan were my my curatorial team. And we did these interviews largely in Arabic and I don't speak Arabic. And so a lot would conduct the, I would ask the question and we go back and forth between English and Arabic, however the artist was comfortable. And in this way, I feel like we were able to kind of map out stories um, that I never would have been able to find um, if I had just shown up cold and been like, all right, let's tell a history. You know, it, it, it's much, it took, it took years. I mean, I think I first started talking to these artists in 2012. Um, and then in 2017, this show opened. Right as we were getting into the thick of it um, was when Hassan Sharif died, actually. And I almost canceled the show because I felt that I didn't want it to seem like the show was sort of capitalizing on this yeah. moment yeah. as a, you know. Yeah. But, but then I talked to the artists and they said, we want to still do it. Let's just do it. And, so we and, and I'm glad you did. And I'm sure Hassan had he been alive, would have approved. And I think it was important, and I, I keep emphasizing this, to, that a lot of the way the story was told was in our own voice, because some of the disconnects that I think we see is how they perceive themselves, their work during different periods, yeah. and then sort of post, quote-unquote, recognition, and how they were perceived from the outside. Right. And by the outside, I don't mean just sort of Western um, art circles. I even mean here, locally. So it was important to hear all sides of the story. Um, and through that, I'm imagining you started forging a relationship with Muhammad Ahmad Ibrahim because yes. you've then worked with him again in Abu Dhabi Art. Yes. And now you will be curating the UAE Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We're very excited at the prospect of what's to come. I am too. So talk to us a little bit about why you were drawn to him, particularly as an artist, and how you see your relationship as you kind of start building for the Venice Biennale. So it's it's really, I I want to start out uh, by thanking Muhammad Ahmed Ibrahim for trusting me, um, and I think that that's the core of this relationship. Was that we, you know, I first put his work in a ship. I will say the first time I saw his work was at the Flying House, but after it was the Flying House, it was now just Hassan Sharif's studio, but there was still some work there, and I saw his work, and I um, I had this sort of you know, like that prickly <laughs> feeling on your skin when something is so amazing. And I, it was this sculpture that now um, is in a private collection that is just this wonderful um, textured sculpture. And and I was like, who is this guy? You know, and I think it was Mohammed Qasim who was telling me who he was. Um, 
And I, you know, and I just kind of filed it away. And then I came across the um, the rocks wrapped in copper, which is another one of his pieces. And which again, is what you put in the inaugural show, electrifying. And yeah, I put fantastic. that in the inaugural exhibition. He came down. He, I think he rode his motorcycle down for that. <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, I think I, I would like this guy. I like his sensibility. And and um, and it was, you know, pretty straightforward. And I didn't think much about it. And then I was doing studio visits, and I went to visit him in Corficon for the first time, and that would have been 2015. And I... Um, Corficon is where he's from, just to explain. Yeah, so, so yeah, his family is, um, he's a multi-generation Corficon uh, yes. resident. And um, and his studio at the time was essentially his garage, tiny little space packed with art. And I went to visit, not really knowing, I mean, I thought I knew what his work was, but it was when I visited his studio that I realized he was in the middle of a major productive period. Prolific, yeah. And the work was just beautiful mm. and just kind of electrifying. And I thought, you know, we're not seeing this. Yeah. People need to see this. <laughs> How we got to get this out there? And then I commissioned him for Abu Dhabi Art. And it was in that process where he, I had him recreate um, a really early installation he had made. And in that process, we started to trust each other in a way that I think you need to, to go into what we're going into now, which is that he, um, together we would look at what he was doing and we could feel an alignment. When something was right, we both felt it, it was right. And when it wasn't right, we both felt it wasn't right. And that's that moment where it does transcend language. It's like this recognition that just, I think was really important. And, so and then, how do you start a process like that? Just well, sorry to interrupt you. So, yeah. a, a new process of creating something new. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is it like you sit there and talk and no. <laughs> you come in with an agenda? I mean, tell yeah. us. <laughs> I'm I so said, curious. I said, um, I said, Muhammad, you know that installation that you did, and I think it was in Sitar the first time that you that the five were presented in Europe and. Um, I was like, would you be interested in making that again today? And he said, for you, I'll walk across fire. I was like, That's really? Great. No one says that about me, by the way. I'm totally jealous. <laughs> I'll walk across fire yeah. for you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. No problem. I feel a lot better no, he that. said it, was, it wasn't quite like that. No, but no, he, was, he was, you know, typically gracious. You yeah. know? And I didn't, I was like, he's just being nice. You know, yeah. okay, fine. I was like, really? And he's like, no, really, I'll do it. Let's do this. And I curated him next to... Uh, Sawal Shuker, Sawal Rauda Shuker, um, because I actually see a connection between their work formally. And he had not seen, seen that, that until he saw his work that I selected next to his, next to hers. Then he, saw, then he understood what I saw. And I think it was that combination of seeing how I put him into dialogue with other artists that he wouldn't have expected. And then also how we together kind of finalized his installation and made those choices together. It was really nice. And then for um, the Cultural Foundation show as well, I commissioned him to make a new work. So this will actually be our fifth... Fourth, um, fourth collab or fifth collaboration. together, yeah. And when it comes to Venice, which, I mean, obviously I don't expect you to be revealing many details, but, you know, given the high profile of, of the event, yeah. does this start from a conversation, again, where you come up with an idea... Or do you just go and say, Muhammad, what do you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just came from a visit with him. We spent a couple of days sure. together this week. And um, and we realized that, you know, he thinks by making, as he's making the work. He doesn't plan it. Interesting. Um, and his process is to discover it as he's making, which is 
artists work in different ways. This is how he works. And I realized in our conversation, I was like, actually, that's how I write. I write a draft and then I realize what I'm actually trying to say and I go back and I rewrite. And it's the act of writing it is how I find out what I think. Hmm. And so, so you play almost like an editorial role in the sense right. to him as he's crafting and as he's right. working. We have been talking about what we're going to do. And, and I think the main thing is that we need to find a process to, um, we're building an exhibition that is being that won't be planned it will actually have to grow naturally and organically mm-hmm. and that's going to be what's happening over the next year and a half is that we will be together growing an exhibition um and i'll play sort of an editorial role um and essentially just giving him room to do what he can do which we know he's very capable of and he's it's really incredible too how serious and and then the gravitas with which he's approaching this so it's really nice to see as a curator, when you're doing this, do you go and look back at previous either UAE or other pavilions? Yes. You do. Because Najum was featured, Mohammed Qazim, a number of his com- contemporaries. Uh, so you do go back and you, you try, do you try to build off that or do you use it sort of just more as a reservoir of knowledge in the back of your mind as you're thinking about what's to come? I would say that it's more... I'm building off it in the sense that I'm attempt, I'm rounding it out. So what have we not seen there? What approaches have we not seen? What, you know, what else is there left to do? Um, and, and really, Mohammed Ahmed Ibrahim's work is quite different from 100%. these past artists. So I don't think we'll have any trouble being different. No. It's more about find, being true to him and finding a way to make the exhibition true to him. Um, That's and, great. And I just, I'm very excited to see how people who have never visited the UAE respond to his work in this contra- in this context. So. Yeah, well, 100%. I think it's extremely exciting. Now, you know, when I was doing research uh, for this episode, I was looking on your website, your gallery website, and I've looked at it many times before, but it struck me as really this wealth of information that's there. So thank you, because it's very functional, which is not often the case with, and I'm not blaming other people have, you know, different resources, different budgets, et cetera but it's a highly functional site uh, and there's a tremendous amount of information for those that want to know more about either past exhibitions or um, what's upcoming or just learn about uh, about the, the, your mission statement and the kind of art that you've shown. Was this something that uh, you always followed as a conscious decision or was it has sort of like many others, um, the COVID pandemic been an accelerator in your uh view clearly, which seems to be part of your mission statement in digitizing and having a functional digital platform, essentially. I would say that COVID gave us uh, the pause that we needed to Mm. get up to speed in this area. I mean, the website up until this year was primarily a repository of past press releases and exhibition pages as they were launched at the time. And so what we've done is um, roughly twice a month, we will upload the archive of an exhibition and do an event to kind around of it. around that exhibition. We call this the trace series. And this is, um, this is really important, particularly at this point in a new organization, you know, we just passed five years. We um, it's time to get our house in order and make sure that what we've done doesn't get lost in time. Right. And so that the website becomes a, a repository for a lot of the work that we've done. And any books that we've published, we try to put the whole book online if we can. Yeah, I noticed um, that. And as many installation views as possible so that so that the memory lives somewhere besides in my hard drive. 
<laughs> when you're doing this tracing exercise, um, and I've noticed that with some of them, for example, you've had almost like a mini reunion, bringing some of the, the yeah. artists and others, collaborators in. How did that feel? Like, let's talk specifically about this exhibition because we talked about it already. When you brought back the artists and you kind of reminisced almost on what was, how was, was there a different point of departure the second time around, people talking about it versus when it happened? Let's see. This is a good question. I would say there's no escaping the difference caused by a pandemic. Sure. Right. So I think one of the things that was a theme running through all of these is how artists and curators are coping now. Um, and, but the also whole ecosystem was disrupted, the whole ecosystem has been disrupted. One example is the artist is moon. Who's a, he does these incredible sound installations, but he has to be there to install the work because they're so complicated. And he's now sort of rethinking his whole practice. How can I make work that can travel without me? And Diana Al Hadid, um, incredible artist for her. This was a time of, um, like since since we last saw her, she's, you know, backed away from her studio. She's had to sort of reactivate her studio practice differently because she has this big team of people working on her sculptures. Um, and I and I so I think that it's it what it does is allow or, and my goal for this series was to humanize the artist and the curator. So if you can't see the art and I'm not going to show art only online, I'm going to I want to show the person. So we can activate the thinking and get to know the people who made the work that we've seen, um, but also to see how they've changed since since they were um, at the gallery. And I think that's been really nice. And for 2021, do you plan to have physical exhibitions? We're going to try okay. very hard. Um, we're on a university campus, which means we have to be extra careful to protect uh, the population that live on our campus. Um, and so we don't know yet when we'll be able to reopen to the public. But in the meantime, I'm curating also a virtual exhibition, okay. which will be um, my answer to, to the question, which is that there is art that doesn't live so comfortably in art galleries. Um, mm. And one of those art forms uh, is digital art. So interactive media, um, games, artificial intelligence, uh, even video, often it feels a little uncomfortable in a white cube, but it might feel more comfortable on a screen. And so we're curating, I'm co-curating with uh, Heather Dewey Hagborg, who's an incredible uh, biohacker information artist who's on our faculty. And so oh, we're co-curating a show of essentially digitally born art that deals- Native art, digital native, native digi art, How Digital native art, yeah. That deals with, um, in some way, the question of how we can use technology to alter our identities, our reality, um, and to sort of be empowered. We often think of technology as taking over, as a threat. Um, but there are many people who use technology to, um, to, to actually augment who they are and how they are. People who have these incredible online identities or they have a whole life that they're living online perhaps or video games that oh, are also poems, you know. And, and I think that this is, um, it, we're curating specifically for the mobile phone. How interesting. So the idea is not that you sit at your computer again, which we're already doing all day, yeah. but that you can relax on your couch and hold an exhibition in the palm of your hand and that this will be a different kind of pleasurable experience from walking into a gallery. So I'm, I'm very excited about well, that's this. That's super interesting because, as you said, I think the first 
attempt at this has been mostly galleries trying to replicate a physical experience online. Exactly. Which has, you know, mixed success. Let's say some works better than others. Yeah. But not digitally native assets that started there. Do you Can you foresee kind of in the future or near future situation where some of these artists are purely, they just work in digital form and those become have the same following as, as we see today with artists that work in the physical world? I do think that can happen. Um, I think that we have reached our saturation point with screens, and I think that's <laughs> going to be the biggest challenge. But that as people kind of go back to less screen-based lives, mm. fewer Zoom meetings, et cetera, then I think turning to your screen for an aesthetic, uh, meaningful experience um, I think there'll be a place for that in a way that maybe there wasn't before the pandemic, actually, where we start to look to that as a place to turn not just for work or for movies, but also for um, general uh, intellectual and spiritual stimulation. That's brilliant. Well, I have one final question for you, more of personal nature. I'm just curious. So having almost spent 10 years here now, you and your family, uh, and having come from all New York and Rhode Island, um, what has surprised you about living here? Mm can be good or bad. I'm just curious. So the thing that surprised me the most or that continues to surprise me as I live here is I forget that the experience of being here and how the world looks from Abu Dhabi and from the UAE is not the same as the experiences I had in New York. So when I, you know, I lived in New York for 10 years and... Um, can I and just I, interject here, sorry? Was it specifically New York you're talking about or your experience in the U.S.? Because... It's in the U.S., but New York, I think, has the mo one of the more extreme cases of okay. it, which is, um, you know, in, in when I'm in Northern California, my home region, in a small town, under no circumstances would I think that I was at the epicenter of the art yeah, world. But New York right? does give you that feeling. But lots when of you're, art worlds, lots of other worlds. Lots of other worlds, yeah. The financial world, the yeah, art 100%. world, the food world. Um, but when you're in New York, this you you quickly begin to feel like this is all there is. And because there's so much and it's a really exciting, fantastic place. And I remember when I mastered the subway, I felt all powerful. <laughs> you know, I know the fastest way from here to there and all the shortcuts. Mm. Um, but then living here, I, I came to realize that even what I thought was important about art had to be questioned and what art is for and the role that art can play um, in sort of bettering and in human experience. Um, and that being, and having to ask that question, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And, and, and in a way sort of everything is open to be challenged to, and to be rethought and the humility that it takes to be willing to rethink from the ground up what I'm doing, I think really changed, um, partly it was possible because I'm here and because of the, the depth and diversity of perspective that I encounter um, in a different position than if I were the American and you're the foreigner and we're in New York, right? Now we're both foreigners in the UAE. And at the same time, we're both also very committed to the UAE. Yeah, and, I, and this connected. is like, I think that experience was a surprise to me to feel so invested and, um, and to go home and feel so surprised that People don't see things that I see. Same way, yeah. I forget that they didn't have the same journey I just had. You can find out more about the gallery at their website link in our show notes. 
Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hesho Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai with support from our Director of Content, Farah Sharif. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or IMDb as that will help more people discover our show. We'll see you in two weeks.